Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. In the thought of seeing, poet Louis Bourne surveys his life through the literary lens. A poet, translator, and educator, Bourne combines keen observation in lyricism with a deep appreciation for the land and the men and women who labor upon it. Throughout the thought of seeing, Bourne reflects on family, those we're born with and those we choose, and the many roads we walk down on life's great journey. The Thought of Seeing is Bourne's fourth poetry collection, but is first to be published in English. The Thought of Seeing is out now from Revival Press, the poetry imprint of the Limerick Writers' Center. Louis Bourne, thank you for joining me today on Georgia College Connections. Well, I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to have some people listen to my poems because the book is published in the town of Limerick, which is right in the center of Ireland, but it's rather remote for a lot of readers in the United States. So I'm happy to say that the book has been accepted on Amazon and recently received a very favorable criticism, so maybe more people in the U.S. will be able to read it. Well, let us start with the poetry. Um, I thought I would uh, allow you to pick the first poem that we'll hear today. Why not start maybe with a windmill? Because windmills, of course, remind a lot of people of Don Quixote, who's the most famous protagonist of the novel Don Quixote de la Mancha. But I, my reading of the windmill in La Mancha... Now, what is La Mancha for starts? La Mancha is a region in the province of New Castile, and it is the area that Cervantes was born in. He was born in Alcalá de Henares, which is about 40 minutes from Madrid. And uh, windmills were a big thing in La Mancha because they had a lot of wheat, and they uh, ground the wheat in the windmills, and... Uh, they had lots of grapes as well and olive trees. But the windmills are still very characteristic of Spanish culture. So in a town called Campo de Criptana, if you look it up on the internet, you'll see Campo de Criptana has about 12 or 13 windmills of the old style. You know, great big walls, a cylindric structure, with thatched roofs, etc. And, of course, inside is a grinding stone that grinds up the wheat. So they were very typical of an old form of agricultural prowess in the time of the early 1600s when Don Quixote was first published, concretely in 1605. And this poem is called Windmill in La Mancha. The sun burned a brooding wave of spirit on a pin, tying down reasons of the wind. Where wooden lace squared cerulean, air split into fallen arcs, a millstone music unhusked a deep fragrance 
where the dry fruit gave. Under fields of groping cloud, jagged rains. Without armor, they challenged mud, pierced another crust to wear resignation rootless in the dust. Other autumns wrinkled faces, purifying need, reviving glaucous sky. They felt their harvest ache in creaking masts. Maybe stars at night were beams melting metals into flesh, pressing grist from winnowed thoughts, gendered idle heads with broken dreams. Some places soak in sweat of generations. On gentle reaches, afternoons ease sunshine into bone, while peaked straw winds through torn filaments of breeze. Grains from starved stalk hurled whispering pungence. For Petrus' teeth, dizzy sails swirled. This shell, without benchers, sinks into sutures of soil. An earthen hull rests here, blind beacon on a bluff, above impoverished treasures of the plains. And of course, you've started our conversation off today paying due respect to Cervantes in Don Quixote. I'm curious to ask, um, as we talk much about Spain um, in your book, The Thought of Seeing, what is the hold that Don Quixote um, has on modern Spain in its literature? Uh, I think a lot of people, not only in Spain but in the rest of the world, consider that Don Quixote was perhaps the first novel. Now, it's a combination of a picaresque novel and a chivalric, satirical novel. Don Quixote was based on medieval knights, but of course he's living in a different age, and agricultural development in Spain was changing the landscape and also changing the society. Spain no longer needed castles for each nobleman to withdraw into his castle and run his own little village with his own serfs. So Don Quixote's based on novels of chivalry, which went out about the 1520s or 1530s. Amadis de Gaula, one of the most famous chivalric novels was dated 1510, I think. And that was about the end of it. So Cervantes was making fun of these fantastical knights, the knight errants, who would travel around trying to do good deeds in the countryside and taking up the problems of others like a kind of rural policeman. But Don Quixote is also a satire on country people, peasants. Most people say peasants. I don't like to call them peasants because it sounds rather uppity and somewhat scornful of their activities. And basically, these country people were the people who farmed the land. And uh, that is what I was interested in. 
Now, how did I get interested in farming in the first place? Because I never lived on a farm, and I was just a suburbanite growing up in Alexandria, Virginia, before I went to Oxford University at 23. Well, my mother told me that I am come from nine generations of tobacco farmers. She was born in Lynchburg, Virginia, out in the western part of the state of Virginia, not West Virginian, but still the state of Virginia. And tobacco farming was very important because a lot of people, in fact, even in England, speak of Virginia tobacco. And Charles I of England, sixth of Scotland, wrote a treatise against tobacco, talking about the Stygian smoke of this Virginia tobacco. So perhaps it's an atavistic desire on my part to get back to the land of ancestors? I can't say. I guess it had something to do with the fact that a suburban boy discovers farming not when he goes to Iowa or Nebraska, but when he lands in Spain for the language. In the poem uh, Emulsion Album, there was one word that stuck out to me is this uh, word immiscible. When two liquids cannot come together to form a homogeneous solution. And I'm wondering if that uh, perhaps is what you're getting at, this almost chivalrous uh, championing of the people who work the land uh, by one uh, yourself who does not have a lifetime of experience there. Well, I was at Oxford University, and Oxford University has a very special place in uh, English history, Oxford and Cambridge are referred to as Oxbridge. And these are the two most famous institutions of the university. And Oxford itself was one of the oldest universities in Europe. Paris, Oxford, and Salamanca in Spain were three of the oldest. So it was a very special class involved thing to go up to Oxford. Now, for me, it was highly ironic for them to be talking about going up to Oxford because the place is full of confluences of little streams and rivers, the Isis and Cherwell and all. And I thought, my God, they're not going up at all. They're going down, (laughs) down and into humidity, (laughs) plenty of humidity. Well, and I wonder if we might uh, read Emulsion Album because that was your departure point for your time in Spain. Yes, exactly. So here's Emulsion Album. Life is born a miscible, diffracting, torn event, leaving distorted views reflecting, bent. I left school at half three. The rooms grew dark behind. Paint chipped like cooked skin. The bell rang a second time when I wasn't in. A girl with red hair got into bed and served a seal of innocence. I see her last in sunlight, the dark between her teeth. Love that didn't bloom became a mental exercise gathering gloom while the grass of the runway is gliding by. The gnarled professor measures words, gloats over a glass of brandy, and then concedes a point. My horizons in England are out of joint. Colloidal years dissolve. For a woman brings landscape and reigns in the rain. 
So memories resolve, rests in other arms, as man falls in feeling to warm himself with absence at her source. Though her black hair bemuses the distance to a pool, he is catching breath to swallow dust. Figures are frozen in their rooms, where fragments of forgetting slip in again. No work, yet pictures of people start bleeding on a page. Imaginations quirk. By day I tie the knots, mooring me to lights, pulling me from a berth with ebbing tide. At night my fathers, in the shadow of a smile, keep walking to their grief. That was the poem Emulsion Album from the collection The Thought of Seeing by Louis Bourne. Tonight on Georgia College Connections, my guest Louis Bourne talks about and reads from his collection The Thought of Seeing. One thing I want to say about that poem is there were two women involved who I will not mention who they are. And there's one man involved, and I'm happy to say that was my tutor, F.W. Bateson, who was a well-known critic of English literature. He was the editor also of the Cambridge Bibliography of English Literature, wrote a book on Wordsworth, The Reinterpretation, and was also an authority on Blake. And every time I would meet him once a week with my paper written about... Uh, as much as I could read of the poet that was assigned, uh, he would listen to me, take notes, and have a sip of his brandy. <laughs> and then he would criticize my paper and on to the next one for the following week. And that was the only official contact we had with the university. We could go to lectures, but Bateson himself said, don't read anything but one or two critics. Try and form your own idea of the author, the poet you're reading. Well, I enjoy that poem because it is indicative of a highly personal collection, and it starts to sketch out somewhat of a narrative of the arc of your life. Uh, is that the case? It's the arc of my life in the sense that I made a strategic decision to drop the idea of doing a doctorate in English and in English or American literature and take up the idea of doing a doctorate in Spanish and Spanish literature. And so that's exactly what I did. When I left England, I said, this is a nice club, but it has hordes of people in it all English speakers, and all fairly well developed. And I said, Spain and Spanish America don't have so many good critics, and they need better criticism, and I think I could also learn a second language really well. Because I always ask myself, how are you really going to learn to speak the foreign language that you want to adopt? And I said, the only way is to go to the place live there, talk to the people, ask them questions, get out in the street. And I could say, watch television. I remember in the middle of the 80s, 
there was a marvelous program about the mafia. Started about 12 o'clock at night, and I would always sit up and watch that mafia program because they had plenty gutsy words, needless to say, about the doings and misbehavior of the mafia in different parts of Europe. Okay, and is this the, not the mafia in, in Spain? Oh, no. It was the mafia um, uh, mostly in Italy and, and in other parts of Europe. But uh, it was a very exciting program, and I watched it. I, it was a very fine in, television series. And as you made that decision to leave England, was Spain the only destination? And if not, uh, how did you choose uh, this country? I had done two masters in English literature. I did a master's at Holland's College on moral issues in four novels by Joseph Conrad, who was a Pole and won the Nobel Prize. But after that, when I went to Oxford, I was told that I really should start reading English poetry from the beginning and doing English literature from the early part of the language, which would be Anglo-Saxon, Middle English, linguistics, and a number of topics century by century with different English poets. I did all that, took the 27-hour exam, three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I said, I'm really worn out. I have spent eight years doing journeyman work for getting a doctorate, but it was not enrolled in a doctoral program. I needed a rest. So I said, I'm going to work there as a teacher and try and learn the language well before I would go back to England. But I said, I like this country better. Actually, from the point of view of the day-to-day life, more than I did in England. And I said, I think I'd like to stay here. And so I planned to stay for two years, and I stayed for 32. You're listening to a conversation with poet Louis Bourne about his collection, The Thought of Seeing. The Thought of Seeing is Bourne's fourth poetry collection, but is first to be published in English. The Thought of Seeing is out now from Revival Press, the poetry imprint of the Limerick Writers' Center. We'll be back in a moment with more Georgia College Connections in my conversation with poet and Georgia College Professor Emeritus Louis Bourne. Stay tuned. If there is one, read one of your poems you feel is uh, most indicative of the Spain that you found when you first made that journey. One of the early poems I wrote was about weeds, and it's really, uh, it has something to do with the fact that I was writing about very dry land. And what interested me about the Spanish hillsides 
was the fact that it wasn't over-rich soil, and uh, people had to struggle hard to farm so much dry land. Dry land in Spanish is called secano. Secano means dry land that isn't easy to irrigate. And uh, wetlands are regadillo, irrigated lands. And so much of Spain is dry wheat, dry barley, dry rye, etc. But there's lots of weeds as well. And at one point, there's a little town outside of Madrid called Chinchon, which appears in a famous film Around the World in 80 Days with David Niven. But I decided to write a poem in Chinchon about the Spaniards as being tough people who could endure like weeds. And so I decided to imagine that the people themselves were the weeds. So here it is. Anchored to socks, they seed travel. Hook finds sandy stars, two legs passing. Share winds track, choking time and thistle, one reeking musty woman, one raising a silky womb. They lunch on air, streamlined to lace a lung's live shape. They dance to times kept by one stray breath. Nights are when anxious fingers stroke stems, struck with fear, racing all day, exploding in splintered shrieks. Birds cry, fly away. Weathered fields left last, grow wild, freed in numbers. Herds drift over gold crests, dropping seed, loveless birth to comb Castile. Harsh stubble for hardened people, weaned on lean meat from dry dugs. Where browns sing, where the dead ooze up to air and sway, where cheeks become awns and a memory trickles into sight. Green spiders drink dark wine from rocky flanks. Weeds poise, bow to a twist of searing light, clutch like climbers to a patch of peace. Moving fast by guile, they root, breed, and stay. What was it that drew you in so much to this rural landscape of Spain? One that I think that uh, we as Americans don't commonly think of when we think about that country. I suspect that it has something to do with the fact that the landscape of rural Spain is a throwback to the 19th century. It's as though the 20th century didn't quite uh, get to the outer reaches of the Spanish countryside. And the old tiles, the old uh, way of building, the lack of suburban houses and, and the sort of area which I grew up in, in Alexandria, which was, after all, a suburb of Washington, this was completely new to me. Even farmhouses in Iowa and Nebraska don't have much to do with the building conditions of Spain. 
they use their clay soil to make these pan tiles, which are on the cover of my book. And the reason they're on the cover of my book is these pan tiles are part of the vernacular architecture of all Spanish-speaking countries. They all have this kind of funny cupped tiles that draw off the rainwater through gullies made with these tiles that cup each other like hands. So perhaps I should read that poem and people would get some idea. These claws molded, sunk to last, grained, pocked for months by the clouds refrain, their red clays crouched unsung over lamplit homes, huddled from the end of cathedrals to this instant's evolving present. Washing runnels of rain's cargo down the murmur of mossy gutters, sweating dew on sultry days under the sun's gilding bakery, they add a sloping strength to an olive tree's shimmering dance and wear, ovened into style, graceful hemispheres, settling brows in seasoned furrows. They exist to background practiced arms, replenished with the soil's odors, as a grandmother's eroded will, decked in dark, sows daydreams to clothe her children's offspring. Tawny cheeks, disordered roofs, sag with inconstant weathers, breeding beards, welcome the model pace of lichens presiding over bleached facades, summing up shadows of shelter, holding warmth in wobbly lines, they cup security like obedient hands. That was the poem Pantiles from the collection The Thought of Seeing by Louis Bourne. Tonight on Georgia College Connection, Louis Bourne talks about and reads from his collection, The Thought of Seeing, which is out now from the Revival Press, the poetry imprint of the Limerick Writers Center. When you first traveled to Spain, did you know that you would take up the culture in the history as you did? Were you foreseeing that? I was interested mainly in the poetry because I had started translating a Spanish poet from the first post-war generation of Spain. Uh, Post-war means post-civil war. The Civil War started in 1936 and ended in 1939. Then Francisco Franco ruled Spain from 1939 until he died in 1975. That first generation of the 40s, there was a poet named Carlos Busonio, and I liked his poetry, and I translated a book of his, uh, most of it, called Oda a la Finita, an ode to ashes. And when I got to Spain the very first year, 
I was there in 1968. I interviewed Carlos Bersonio and presented him with five poems translated into English. And I found that he was very enthusiastic. And so we became good friends, and he turned out to be living not far from where I was. So I would often go to him, and he became a kind of mentor to me in my first writings in Spanish. He would look over my poems, and he said to me, you really should be writing hendecasyllabic lines, these 11-syllable lines that come from the Renaissance. And Garcilaso's experience of the 11-syllable line from Italy. So I paid a lot of attention to him, and I started to put together poems, and I tried to use successfully, in some cases, uh, sometimes not so successfully, I tried to use this metrical system of the hendecasyllabic line, which is approximately equivalent to iambic pentameter in English, which we have, of course, in Chaucer, in Shakespeare, and in Wordsworth, to mention three vastly different generations of iambic pentameter. But I had not expected to be writing so much about landscape. I think what happened to me was that I no longer was a suburbanite, I was an urbanite. I was living in the city, and I was living next to the central park of Madrid called Retiro Park. And, of course, when you get in the city, you want to get out, just as people do everywhere. If you live in New York City, you want to get out of New York City and go to Long Island. That's what people do. Every big city has its problems and its traffic and whatnot. Well, it's interesting, though, because when you said you want to get out, I assumed you meant you want to get out the door and, and go walking and discover well, this, that this, place. This is it. Mm-hmm. You want to walk. You <laughs> want to see landscape. You want to live with the trees and the uh, wildflowers or the weed or whatever you're going to happen upon when you go into the rural countryside and not always be faced by cars and traffic and smog. And uh, Madrid has its share of smog because behind Madrid are the Guadarrama Mountains, and they tend to trap a lot of smog in the summer especially. So if you get out of Madrid and you look back in Madrid in in a sort of large uh, open valley plain, you see a brownish-yellow appearance to the atmosphere that makes you think, oh, my God, those people are breathing that stuff. And you, too, are breathing it because you're going back there to live, so you, you know, undoubtedly want to get out. And, of course, this is one of the climatological problems of living in big cities anywhere. Ask about New Delhi, for example, where I lived in 1950. They people used to ride bicycles. And Connaught Place, which is near where government buildings were, they had so many bicycles together, it was like a school of fish. But now I'm sure they all have cars because New Delhi has a big problem with too much smog air. And uh, and other cities, of course, are learning the same situation. Well, you do write a lot about uh, getting out of that city. And I was wondering if you might uh, consider reading uh, next, uh, Walking Near Wilderness. All right. Uh, Perhaps to talk about that uh, escape from the city center. 
you know, the, walking near wilderness is sort of a, a, a sort of an epiphany to me. Mm. And the epiphany began when I read a story in ABC newspaper that talked about trees and human beings and how trees biologically are, are related to human beings in many ways. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. And Walking Near Wilderness is a poem that I wrote about a wealthy landowner friend who befriended me because I liked poetry. And I also think he wanted me to translate some of his poetry, and I did. I got one or two poems published by him. But he had two large estates, one in La, in La Mancha, and this poem is about that area. And he had, in particular, almond trees. And almond trees are usually grown in this country, in California. But in La Mancha, there are a lot of almond trees, and he had a bunch of them on his land in La Mancha. So it starts off talking about that, and it says, no one wants this field out here for anything but wheat. The stubble moans for months in gray-white sheen, maimed leavings of a sloping womb, and above, crowns of tangled growth. Birds forlornly call in cruising breeze, and in the bone-blue sky, a cumulus trail snakes slowly through the fort of breathless void. These fields are someone's bread. Who knows whose? But right here, a beauty stagnates in the whispering of stones, broken copper crust of fallow land. The convalescent dreams in shorn flanks for next November's engines to lift her rocks once more, plow the dead stalks under, and drop the virgin's secret germination. Something of angels snowing rests in trees. The air is celestial feathers left in lattice works of foam on the growing swell of skeletons of wave. In squares of surf, alternate buds rose with hurt, unearth white faces to the wind, longing to enclose in endocarp, enriching meat of soil in drying fruit. Whatever grows is waiting for its picking or its cutting and its drift. The nature of man is in a stem, and what he cultivates is the greening of his flesh, the mimicry of being in his blood. Someone's threading the valley to the grove, an ear of grain that found no home remains. That was the poem, Walking Near Wilderness, from the collection The Thought of Seeing, by my guest, Louis Bourne. Tonight on Georgia College Connections, Louis Bourne talks about and reads from his collection The Thought of Seeing. Now, what I was aiming for here was when I say the nature of man is in a stem, is that, that man's physical metabolic system of blood and bone, etc., is chemically related to the growth of plants as well. And what he cultivates is the greening of his flesh. 
<laughs> the identification of his flesh with the plants. And the more they work the plants, the farmers, the more they feel a special communion with the crops they're growing. And how did you come to see that vicariously through them? Because I think it has a lot to say about how human beings have to learn to recognize and appreciate the development of nature as part of an integrated system where man and plants and trees and animals, etc., all belong to one unity in a natural setting. And I think we lose that. So when you look at a person who's worked the land and has a, a grizzled face from the sun and is used to getting up at dawn and uh, working from dawn to, to late afternoon, etc., you see somebody who appreciates that his paycheck comes from his actual understanding of the soil, what can grow, and what can enrich him in all senses. Enrich him in terms of food, enrich him in terms of making some money to make a living, and enrich him in terms of ordering the otherwise chaotic development of nature. If you just let a field go to itself, you won't end up with the wheat or the barley or the olive trees or, or all the things. So when you're looking at farmed landscapes, you're looking at humanly evolved production of food for human beings, but at the same time, a landscape that's being successfully used, stopping growth in one field so that it can replenish, and then cultivating other crops in another field, etc., and learning what the limits of the soil can be and how to replenish the soil to have further growth. All these things are something that people, I think, would be interested and fascinated to see if they stopped long enough to have a look. In a sense, as you answered that last question, I wonder, is this a sense you are cultivating the wild landscape of your life and your education and giving it order in this book so as to celebrate that which has enriched you? Yes, yes, I think that's very much so. But I have to say, I'm a mere spectator. I'm not doing the work. I'm just an idle creature out here trying to appreciate them. But they're the ones who are the heroes of their struggle to feed and be the bread loaf of a whole country. Well, and what do you hope in the act of memorializing them through your work, the poetry? Well, I think it's nothing more than just trying to appreciate the fact that when we see the farmers and the people who have to work at it so hard, they're more than, than combined harvesters. Now, a lot of farming is done by vast companies that have combined harvesters and 
They've got technological this, that, and the other. They've got all kinds of irrigation systems, etc. This is almost as though the things that were earlier done by human beings can now be done largely by machines. But I think if we don't have an opportunity to cultivate our garden, as Voltaire would say at the end of Candide, or to cultivate our fields, as the farmer would say, and he knows the where, when the rain is coming and when he's going to have a good year or a bad year, then we're sort of cut off from the natural context of the earth. And so basically what I'm doing is appreciating a whole occupational endeavor of a people that for centuries made for the initial prosperity of human beings. You can't thrive, go to school, read, be have universities, etc., if you haven't even got enough to eat. And of course, many Europeans have pointed out that the Americans, which are supposed to be uh, such a first world country in many aspects, still has grave problems of not being able to feed its people well enough. And this is, it seems absurd, but it's true. But the United States is a very varied country. The United States is literally a subcontinent within a subcontinent. So we need to be cognizant of all the differences we have illustrated by our national parks, by the different kinds of land that all have different solutions for developing the land to its maximum enrichment for other human beings and for the animals and creatures that develop a harmonious ecological system. Of course, in the end of the the 90s, a number of poets in Spanish America started to write eco-poems, poems about ecology, etc. But my ecology writing in Spain is just our association with the fields as a mirror of our endeavors, of our basic endeavors to have enough to eat, whether we're raising animals for slaughter or just plants for harvest. We still have to live off the land, and ultimately we're going to live off the seas. Is there a poem that expresses the uncertainty of an imbalance in those systems that I think I perceive you talking about right now? Fernando's Faith is a poem, really, about the tedium and the lack of means to develop the land appropriately. So I think what it expresses is more... a a little sense of desolation, which many farmers feel. And in fact, some villages in Spain have been abandoned. I've been in Soria, in the province of Soria, and I've actually been to two or three little villages or towns where the pan towels of the roofs have sunk in and, and the whole village has been abandoned. The people were not able to make a living there. They didn't know what to do. They didn't have 
communication or transportation or means to get about, and they finally just left the little towns. But this thing, Fernando's faith, is kind of an irony in a way. And it's dedicated to my Irish friend, a poet named John Liddy. And it starts off with a man and his wife, and they're both in the fields. And the fields are especially dry. Maybe they've had a bad season, there weren't enough rains, whatever. And they, this poem tries to express that frustration. And it starts off with his wife, and it says, She remembers her wants in a first Sunday dress over the punishment and pardon of dry yellow fields. They tractored there, but worn it out, embedded in climbing troughs. Nowhere to go but to knead a wall of clods to a mirage of moist fruit. Give us another daily bread, they hounded their god. Down he handed his heat, the sentence in a barren sigh. One night he struck out to trek the hills. Earth was black sky, a moonless room that held no hum, no background ebb of origins. Vertigo in the void grew silence in a din of living death. The uproar hushed in every cell. He searched dark gleams for a seed of thought, soil for a beam to follow. Dawn harrowed hope in the furrows. No use asking rocks for a way out. No use craving completion in a bud. In his head, he builds just one house to see redemption from yellow fields. So that, I think, would be comparable, maybe, to a poem written about a farmer in the Depression era of the United States. That's exactly what people felt. These dust storms that would remove the fertile uh, topsoil of the land and blow it down to Texas or wherever, or out to sea. And uh, this sense that cultivating the land, if you don't work together and have a unified system of farming, even though you own less or more property than others, but all have to withstand the inclemencies of the weather. And many times the inclemencies can be caused by man himself, by overuse of products, by too much carbon in the air, by uh, many other things. So we have to be worried about the ecological circumstances of farming fields in the middle of our country, as well as the Spaniards in their rather drier country. And this poem tries to express something of that. You're listening to a conversation with poet Louis Bourne about his collection, The Thought of Seeing. The Thought of Seeing is Bourne's fourth poetry collection, but is first to be published in English. The Thought of Seeing is out now from Revival Press, the poetry imprint of the Limerick Writers' Center. 
We'll be back in a moment with more Georgia College Connections in my conversation with poet and Georgia College Professor Emeritus Louis Bourne. Stay tuned. Moving towards the end of our time yeah. uh, today, uh-huh. and one of the decisions that you had made in the book was to bookend this with remembrances of your father. Uh-huh. And I was wondering if you could talk about your decision to do so, and, uh-huh. and also read one of the two poems that begin and end the thought of seeing. Uh-huh. Well, the beginning poem is a poem that I wrote about a place called Whitestone Beach in Virginia. And it was a very curious situation because the house that I describe in that poem was actually an old post office. And it had a name, and the name was Taft, because Taft was the president after Teddy Roosevelt. And he was a friend of Roosevelt, and then later not so much a friend. But that old post office got left behind as a post office. They stopped using it as a post office, and it just became a place for vacationers to stay. And usually Virginia vacationers who knew that it could be rented. My family rented it for several years, and I ended up writing a poem about meeting the house and feeling a sense of abandonment in the house, of emptiness in the house. Yet the house was part of me and part of that earth. And I didn't realize when I wrote the poem that I was writing not only about my self-identity, but of my father's death in 1957. Because my memory is always of the first summer that I spent there without my father when I was 15. He died when I was 14. So that poem deals with that. The second poem is a poem in which I tried to imagine my father in terms of what he liked and what he did. And so this is one of the early poems It talks about one's limits, and that is also bound up with my name. My name is actually Bourne, B-O-U-R-N-E, and Bourne is the same word as Bourne, B-O-U-R-N, and it means two things. In Scottish, it could be a burn, which is a stream, but in normal English parlance, it usually refers to a boundary. And so Shakespeare uses it in the to be or not to be speech, and he speaks of that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. And he refers to it as death. So when I wrote about this old post office, I thought of it at that time in the year 1957 when my father died. 
and I dedicated to a friend that my mother invited, a good friend that I had from my early teenage years, John Sabatka. And it talks about the surroundings of the house. Maybe an oak trembles or a winking poplar's eyes. There dawn grafts its light, ripples of a feathery sea, rivers muscling out in a platinum horizon. Each curl breaks its salty joy, drops through lobbed valleys of renewing swell. This land stops flush at wrinkled feet, suddenly goes white, the sand so fine its textures take soft skin to fix luminescence in the light. On a grassy rise, a house stands out. Its windows picture the fine hairline taut between blue sheet and the self-enfolding plane of knitting water. No one is in the house, yet it is lived by a space familiar as a hand often held and bleached boards wait in perfect calm for their imbricated fate, for the body's approach, a strolling pace to arrive, fingers to probe the dark earth's handle. So the stand on the threshold of an aging moment would give entrance back to the forgotten air they long contained, to a stasis gathering like the clearest core of an abyss. Retreating, I am still standing, lost in a skirmish without wars, fragments of a torn imagination, where a name and an image blur. Well, Louis Bourne, I want to thank you for joining me today on Georgia College Connections and sharing poems from the collection, The Thought of Seeing. All right, and I want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, let some of the students, maybe, who may still be here, um, get uh, some impression of Spain. And I would suggest going there, and I would suggest going on Delta. It goes straight to Madrid, and I can tell you it's just like a long overnight bus ride. What you'll be surprised is that when you uh, wake up at, uh, at uh, uh, 4 in the morning, it will be 10 o'clock in Madrid. And they'll be starting out their a day, the following day that you've been traveling through, to lose six hours. And so the best thing you can do is go to your hostel, hotel, uh, family, friend, who may live in Spain, and take a nice nap. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> On this edition of Georgia College Connections, I talked with Georgia College Professor Emeritus of Spanish, World Languages, and Cultures, Dr. Louis Bourne.
A poet and translator of poetry, Louis Bourne's first collection of poetry in the English language is The Thought of Seeing, and it's out now from Revival Press, the poetry imprint of the Limerick Writer Center. I spoke with Louis Bourne in December 2020. On behalf of WRGC 88.3 FM, I have been your host, Daniel McDonald. I want to thank you for spending a portion of your evening with me here on Georgia College Connections. I hope you enjoyed our time together, and I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you again next time.